How's that? Okay. This is Fall 2021, Mary Ellen Fonderheiden Fellow in Fiction, Lan Samantha Ching. The award-winning author of the collection Hunger and the novels Inheritance and All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost has been breaking barriers as the first woman and the first Asian-American to be director of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. For today's episode of our Beyond the Lecture podcast, Chang sat down with producer Yuyana Shallow to discuss her forthcoming novel, The Family Chow. Listen in as the two chat about immigrant families, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, hunger, and the literary mystery that is her latest work. Sam, your new novel, The Family Chow, centers around a Chinese-American family in a Midwestern village. And this family explores questions of long-term cultural assimilation. I was wondering whether you could tell us who is this eponymous family and how many generations does the story cover and which problems do they face? When I say long-term assimilation, what I was thinking about when I wrote the book is that this is a family that's been in the U.S. for a very long time, but not for that many generations. There are no grandparents. They're the original immigrants, Leo and Winnie Chow, who came to the U.S. from Asia and met in the Midwest in Chicago and moved to a smaller town, you could call it a village, to open a restaurant. And their children, Dago, whose name is William, Ming, the middle son, and James, who's the youngest. And the long-term aspect of this assimilation is that Leo and Winnie have been running this business of the restaurant now for about 35 years, and they've been pretty successful with it. When they started off, they were two of the only Asian immigrants in a town with many, many people who weren't familiar with their cuisine or their restaurant, and they eventually built the business into a fairly successful local Chinese restaurant, always considered somewhat exotic by the original inhabitants of their town, Haven, but eventually pretty established and quite old uh, for a small business. And their sons have also become adults. So their immigrant experience is in the past. And yet in many ways, it's very much taking place as the novel unfolds. Leo is still running the restaurant at the beginning of the novel, but he's almost 70 years old and his Sons are learning to make their way into the United States. The oldest, Dago, has gone away to college and then to live on the East Coast and sort of failed at his endeavors there. He returns back to the restaurant and is bossed around by his tyrannical father. And he's in his mid-30s and he's beginning to think, I need to have my own life. I need to be a real partner in this restaurant instead of just my father's servant person. And then the middle child, Ming, goes out to New York City and becomes a very successful banker in his late 20s. He has a goal of making a certain amount of money so that all of his problems will be solved. The youngest child, James, is going to college and is planning to be a medical student. In the course of the book, the children of Leo Chow face the question of whether they're immigrants anymore. And I think that this is because they've been in the U.S. for such a long time that they feel 
that it's their home. And this is an issue that I think is true in the lives of many immigrants who've been in a country for long enough so that they've been there longer than they've been in the old country, or perhaps, as in the case of Ming, Dago, and James, they've never lived in the old country. You know, the question is, what does the old country become to them? Okay, so I think that gave us a pretty good overview of your novel. So as we talked about the book content-wise now, let us maybe switch over and talk a bit about the narrative style. In your lecture, you said that The Family Chow is an homage to Dostoevsky and his novel The Brothers Karamazov. But this connection does not regard the content so much, but rather the style, the narrative style. For example, the use of the present tense and the concept of community voice. Can you tell us more about these concepts and sure. the impact of Dostoevsky for your own writing? The big picture of Dostoevsky's impact on my own writing is something that I'm still learning to figure out right now. But I can tell you how I was inspired to write The Family Child by certain elements of the Brothers Karamazov. There are two parts. The first part takes place in three days. It follows the characters through almost every twist and turn and definitely every everything they eat for three days. And then there's a gap of several months followed by the second half of the book, which describes the trial. I was really interested in this for a lot of reasons. One is at the time when I started writing this book, which was about 15 years ago, I was very interested in the idea of beginning, middle, and end because I'd been reading Aristotle and also because I had been taught beginning, middle, and end. It had been drummed into my head. And here was a book that was told in two parts. I was fascinated by the gap of time. I was also fascinated by the way that Dostoevsky used time in the first half, sort of slowed it down so that, you know, time was dilated and we were watching everything that Alyosha did for days and days, long nights when he got very little sleep. He would eat something and I would I would keep track of the last time he had had a meal in those three days. And at the time that I started thinking about making my project into an homage to this book, I had been sitting on for years about 100 pages of a manuscript I'd written in 2005 that had three children of a tyrannical father. The passage was put aside because I felt like it didn't have a narrative vehicle But what I enjoyed most about it was the present tense voice that I had just discovered. And I'm embarrassed by this because the present tense is something that at the time I was telling people they probably shouldn't write in because it's impossible, right? Things do not unfold in front of your eyes. Time does not unfold in the, in the way that the present tense implies it does. But yet I was fascinated by this. And at some point, I actually just two days ago, looked through my old diaries and found the diary entry in 2013 when my interest in the, the novel, The Brothers Karamazov, intersected with my interest in the voice and the passage that I'd written years earlier and the conscious decision that I was interested in turning the project into an homage to The Brothers Karamazov. I realized that unfolding the first three days in the present tense would be an interesting project. It would be a project that I would enjoy. I was also really interested in the way that uh, the Brothers Karamazov uses point of view. It's a point of view I've used in an earlier novel that I call the first person omniscient. There's a narrator who basically tells the story, even the parts where he or she or they are not present, just by having this kind of community awareness or family awareness of what happened. And in the Brothers Karamazov, the first person narrator barely appears in the book, but occasionally 
mentions uh, his presence in the community and at one point says, I was present at the trial. This is in the second half. And the, the trial is the section of the Brothers Karamazov where the community is watching the trial unfold. And so I became interested in my book with the idea of creating a community voice. However, I did not want it to be first person omniscient. For one thing, I'd done it in another book and also because I just didn't want to choose which of the characters would be the first person omniscient voice. seems upset with Doggo, he says instead. That's because Doggo was his favorite. Their favorite still is. It seems perverse, given how different his parents are, to imagine that any of their sons could be the favorite of them both. Yet, as usual, Ming speaks with authority, as if relating an established piece of family history. Ming can remember. Six years older than James, he's had first-hand experience of things James will only hear about, James has the crushing sense that he was born too late to understand the real story of the Chows, the great passions, the bedrock promises and betrayals that form the basis of whatever lies among the members of his family have long since taken place. Does their father disdain Dago because he once had such high hopes for him? Surely their mother doesn't feel that way. Ming says, whatever else you can say about her, Ma is just as traditional as Dad. Dago's their oldest son. He was supposed to be the crowning achievement of their lives in the U.S. He takes a bite and chews calmly, observing James, assessing his reaction. James stares at the table. Think back 35 years, Ming says. They've moved to this lousy town. They hate their lives. They hate the villagers. They hate the weather. They hate each other. But their eldest son, he's going to be a winner. You can tell by the way Ma talks about how Dago was as a baby, the way her voice will sweeten, the way she says he was such a precious baby, her bao bei, so bright, so large, so talented. Of course he would grow up and prove their lives were worth something. And Dago is large and smart, but he's turned out to be a disappointment. <laughs> a chapter called The Other Restaurant from the family Chow and with it we caught a glimpse on the three brothers of your novel Dagu, Ming and James a glimpse I think through Ming's eyes mm -hmm. actually and in your lecture you said that he forces the respect of family roles like of oldest, middle and youngest child or brother upon them and especially upon him and the oldest one so the passage we just heard illustrates that very good. Ming describes Dago as the parents favorite someone who should grow up and prove their lives were worth something and James the youngest brother is said to have the crushing sense that he was born too late to understand the real story of the Chows. Maybe you can you can tell us why Ming is so obsessed with these family roles and the expectations <laughs> that go along with them. Thinking it over right now, I suspect Ming is obsessed with the family roles because he's the middle child. There's always an older child and a younger child when there's three brothers, but the middle child is their role is less clear, and I think that Ming is obsessed with carving out his own story throughout this novel. He wants, in a way, to succeed more than his older brother. He also feels this sort of need to take care of the younger brother. For example, he pays for the meal with James at the end of the scene in the restaurant. 
And James realizes that actually when he's with his family, he never has to pay for a meal because it's this Chinese belief that the older take care of the younger. And he, I think more than the other brothers, perhaps because they take care of him, feels a sense of having been loved and feels loyal to the family. I think Ming is obsessed with Dago in particular, his older brother, who he says is the favorite of both of the parents. And I have no reason as the author not to disbelieve him. I think Dago is the is the favorite of the parents as the firstborn. And I think though in the novel that Dago feels a lot of pressure about being the oldest child, the oldest son in the family. And I think that that kind of pressure is one of the reasons why he behaves as desperately as he does and makes so many, I think, stupid decisions, like rash decisions. And I wish I could talk about the end of this novel because I don't want to give it away. But I would say that ultimately what Dago does is make a major sacrifice in order for the family to continue as it does. And in that way, making that sacrifice for the family, I think he does ultimately fulfill the role that he feels responsible to fulfill, which is the role of the eldest son. As you were just talking, you said something that struck me as very interesting because you said, as the author, you have no <laughs> uh, like like reason to, to not believe him. I think that is very interesting because we, we talked about Dostoevsky before and I think it was Mikhail Bakhtin who also analyzed Dostoevsky and his narrative style and his conception of truth right and how his characters have different kinds of truth but that just reminded me of that is that something you you also believe as a writer that your characters are somehow responsible for themselves and have their own ways to believe in things and to have their own truth. Is I that something not you always, grant them? Yeah, I have not always felt that way about my books, but about this particular book, the voices of the characters really came to me from a space that I believe is their own. Somebody was telling me that they find their characters. You know what? I think it was Lady Hubbard, my fellow fellow. We were at dinner in the Academy and she was saying that she finds characters. I think these characters existed somehow, not just in the Dostoevsky prototype, but in my consciousness or soul somewhere, they were there. They exist somewhere. It might be outside of me that they exist, but I found them from my own head and I, I didn't consciously make them up. There are a lot of voices in this novel. There's a lot of monologuing happening, characters going on and on about their thoughts and feelings. And those voices basically came to me as I was writing it. I did not sit down and think, okay, what would Ming say next? Ming just started talking and I wrote it down. So yeah, I think of Ming as being his own person. And I, I also think this about siblings, having three sisters myself. You think you understand what happened in your family. But actually, people who've gone through virtually the same experience in the same environment as you have, have an entirely different perspective of something that happened in your family. So I guess I'm just giving Ming a little space and acknowledging that his perspective of their family has its own validity, even though it's very different from, I assume, what Drago would say, or even what James would say. says James, why were you so mean to Catherine? What's she ever done to you? Catherine? Ming clears his throat. 
nothing, not nothing. No, it's just she enrages me. She should get away from us for her own good, but she won't leave. Because she was adopted by well-meaning white people and raised apart from her kind, she is stuck on us. She's fetishized us. She wants to be us, for God's sake, and what she should really do is accept who she is, a highly intelligent, beautiful, very lucky, well-brought-up young woman who just happens to look like us. You're insulting her and us. Catherine and I are strictly business, Ming continues. James can tell the statement for Ming is both true and not true. She and I talk. We even have a coffee now and then when she's in New York, although she has to order tea because it's more authentic. He frowns at James. Why, you got something to tell me? Let's stay with Ming maybe for a little, but not quite, because we, we also met another character in the Red Passage who is Catherine. And I, yeah. I think if I, if I got it right, Catherine used to be engaged to Dargo for quite a long time. Is, is that Yes, right? a super long time. In fact, they're technically still engaged, but it's really clear that his feelings have moved elsewhere. And Catherine is the one who's sort of holding onto this formality for most of the novel. But she also strikes me as some someone particularly interesting because uh, she has been adopted by a white family and during college she discovered her Chinese heritage, right? Mm -hmm. And Ming says about her that she enrages me. She should get away from us for her own good, but she won't leave because she was adopted by well-meaning white people and raised apart from her kind. So especially that little part at the end made me wonder what kind of identity questions she has to deal with and yes. why 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 exactly ming is so hostile oh why is ming hostile ming is furious with catherine for a lot of reasons i mean to give it away i think ming is in love with catherine okay like that that seems fairly clear to me i also think ming has massive issues about his own chinese american identity out of all of the characters in the book i would say that ming is the most hung up and the most self-hating about his identity Keeping in mind that Ming is very much attracted to Catherine, Ming has problems dating Asian women. And he doesn't want to. He wants to date white women because on some basic level, he just wants to erase his Chinese-American heritage and be part of white society. And I think it just enrages him that Catherine, with whom he has unexamined but very strong feelings, has the exact opposite feeling. Catherine has been raised in a well-meaning white family in a very homogeneously white part of the United States. And she discovers her identity when she goes to college and meets other Asian Americans there, one of whom is Dago, Ming's older brother. And I think that Catherine, at first, in the novel it describes that she was somewhat confused by Dago's attentions. He was interested in her because she had never been raised with Asian boys and she also just wasn't raised in a culture in which there were very many Asian male models of romantic behavior. But then she she became interested in him and fell in love because he's a very warm, generous, open, kind of charming person. She becomes also attached to his mother, Winnie. And there's this scene, there's a description later in Ming's, he, He remembers Dago bringing Catherine home for the first time and Catherine and Winnie sort of falling in love with each other because Catherine had never 
had an older female role model figure and Winnie had not had a daughter. And so this all happens. And then Doggo, who's kind of a hapless person, of course, he kind of grows sideways away from the relationship. But Catherine is still very devoted and also very interested in the family as an Asian American family. Does that sort of answer your question about some of her conflicts. Yeah, I think it does. And I think it is also, maybe maybe it is almost tragic that Ming is feels so much self-hated. And I think in the passage we're going to hear next, he imagines a white heritage for himself. Yes, he does. And I think it is almost, maybe almost tragic that Catherine had that kind of white heritage because her adoptive family was white and he hasn't. And that this kind of conflict, I think that is quite fascinating for for a story which is unfolding. I think the dilemmas that Catherine and Ming find themselves in have been created to a certain extent by the fact that they live in a culture where Asians are sort of in a very strange racial position. They're not white, but they're held up to other minorities as an example of the ideal minority, the model minority look, the Asians are doing well in school, why can't everyone else, etc. But the question of how the Asians themselves feel and what they're going through being in the position that they're in is of interest to me. And I think that Ming and Catherine sort of illustrate um, some of those questions. Just as you said that, that also reminded me of a passage where I think Dago is talked about again and yeah he was he was raised to be an emperor right in in a society yeah yeah, yeah. He's with, the which doesn't son. doesn't like see yeah. him or where he's invisible right exactly but he was, exactly he was sort of spoiled by his parents and they expected great things of him and then he goes out into yeah. a world where he realizes that nobody really sees him as a big deal okay <laughs> so yeah every one of these characters kind of has their own identity conflict yeah i guess james also the youngest in the very first scene of the novel james is in a train station looking for his train and an old chinese man appears and this old man asks him for directions in chinese and james whose family by then has been in the country so long that they sort of forgot to teach it to james because he spent most of his time with his brothers as a kid um, james can't answer this man he looks asian and another asian man asks him a question hoping that he can help him but he can't help and because James always wants to help everybody this is a conflict for him and it it actually propels him into doing things to help something to help the old man and propels him into the major conflict of the book isn't the story of the father or even of the first son that dissolute failure but of the second son perhaps because they're already disappointed the parents overlook the qualities of the second son who was born possessing intelligence and above all reason this advantage a brain has been given to no one else in his family the rest of the family is all spleen and heart and guts but no brain this second son has never been the favorite He doesn't own a single article of clothing that wasn't once worn by his older brother. He isn't given a single new toy. He's left alone. He has a rich fantasy life, the second son. Having no advantages at school or at home, he develops his ability to dream in classes where he excels, between classes when he's bullied in the halls, and after classes on the bus. 
especially on the bus, where no one will sit next to him, where he's called names, and boys throw spitballs and worse at him, and girls giggle and hold their noses. Ming mimics the gesture and enjoy watching this happen. On the bus, the second son envisions another self, impervious to all of this. Oh, he knows he's alone and surrounded by jeering children, but in his imagination, he's not being bullied. He's also watching. He can't feel strangers' fingers twist the corners of his eyes. He's invulnerable. In his mind, he stays on the bus as it goes past his house, past his neighborhood. The bus continues toward the edge of town where the houses are larger and the cars sleeker. The second son imagines that the people he calls Ma and Ba are not his real parents. How could they be? Because in his heart of hearts, he believes his real parents are white. They could be teachers, dentists, even mill workers. But they have craggy features, pink skin, and light eyes. They eat food as bland as their hair and skin color. And they gave birth to him, making him generic. This alone he desires, and wishes so much he believes it, possessing true potential, possessing the ability to truly become anyone and anything. Because America is not a democracy. It's not a place of opportunity, he knows, if you can't choose to be white. And because the second son despises these people he calls Ma and Ba, he doesn't honor or obey them. He breaks a fundamental tenet of Confucianism and one of the commandments as well. And oh, he's not so dumb, James. He knows this means he despises himself. Self-hatred is his meat and drink. Self-hatred is the fuel of his emotional life, his life in the world, his soon-to-be adult life. And yet he thrives, James. He becomes an achiever. You may be wondering how he manages to thrive while burdened by so much self-hatred. How can he succeed? How can he make it if he fundamentally doesn't think he should exist? It's because he manages to see above the wall of this disadvantage, because self-hatred is as galvanizing as ambition. He develops the ability to see above his deprivation and to realize that, in reality, he's lucky. Because he isn't cherished, he's allowed to aim beyond his parents' petty goals. He can leave them all behind. another passage from Lan Samantha Chang's novel, The Family Chow. And let us dive into your characters maybe a bit more. You told me that your characters both experience and cause trauma at the same time. And I was wondering whether this is particularly true of Ming. Sorry, I, I bring him up constantly. Well, but he's the main character. In yeah, so yeah. that makes sense. I was wondering whether this was particularly true of, of Ming and his self-hatred. And this apparently goes back to his childhood. And now it also seems to poison his relationships uh, with, with his family as well as potential girlfriends. Can you tell us more about his struggle with that and, and what it means for the novel? Sure, I'll try. I mean, I was going to say Ming is one of the main characters. He's the main character in the passages we're discussing. The novel itself, I think, goes into multiple points of view, including James, who's the first point of view, and then also Dago himself. So Ming's point of view, I would say that Ming's story, in many ways, It moves forward into the novel. He has a major role to play in the plot that unfolds, but it also moves backwards to his childhood where we discover trauma that he has experienced as, as a kid. And I'm not saying it explains the reason that he behaves the way he does, but it completes the picture of why Ming is the way he is. I have to admit I got a great deal of enjoyment out of writing from Ming's point of view 
other people have told me that they at first did not find him sympathetic at all. He's just rather harsh. He's judgmental and harsh. And this allows him to say a lot of things that other people in the novel aren't going to verbalize. But one of the reasons he's so harsh is that it's sort of a self-hatred that comes from the outside, like he can feel it, and he's turned it in upon him himself and also the people around him. I think that the characters in the novel have experienced the trauma of relocation, trauma of being outsiders, and in this book, um, their own family issues contribute to the tension and stress, sort of erupt into a situation in which it's clear, it becomes clear that they also do harm to others around them. And I didn't want to make them these perfect sort of sad victims. I feel sick of that. I'm interested in characters who will get themselves into trouble as well. So that's basically what the novel is about. It's about something really bad that happens and then who's responsible. And talking about trauma and really bad things happening, you also mentioned making ghosts in a place. And in the beginning, we talked about cultural assimilation. And I think in your project description, you said that at the end of your novel, the characters finally realize that they are no longer to be considered immigrants, but they that they are Americans now. And that one of the reasons for that is that America is the place where they made their ghosts, right? I think this is how, yes. how you how you uh, said again. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I think of ghosts in many cases as arising when there's unfinished business. I think people can be haunted by something that is theoretically gone and past, but they still have feelings about. Sometimes guilt, longing, loneliness, just an unfinished feeling. And that that is basically what happens in the course of my novel. Like simmering tensions in the family erupt. Bad things happen. Think Everybody does something that they wish they hadn't done or something that they know they're going to have bad dreams about. Something that's going to haunt them. And because they did those things in this country, they can't call themselves like innocent, clean slate, like we're just starting out here people anymore. They're not starting out here. They've reached a point where they've made ghosts here, and so they belong here. This is like that riddle about the town with the two barbers, Ming says, as James approaches. You go to a small town with only two barbers. One of the barbers has a bad haircut. If you and I want privacy, we're doomed to a shitty meal. The food can't be that bad. Ming shrugs and checks his phone. There's one good thing on the menu, and it's the fish sandwich. He waves his hand at the other side of the booth. Sit down and order. Go crazy. Supper's on me. James sits. A young woman brings him a menu, laminated in plastic, illustrated with colorful photographs, open-faced, sliced turkey sandwich with gravy and mashed potatoes, a jaunty cheeseburger and fries. James's mouth waters. He loves American food. Although he's been eating at the dining hall for a semester, it's still exotic. Ming says, I have to eat anyway before I got on the plane, last flight to Chicago. How's this going, little brother? The server reappears with Ming's plate. She's about 24 with a messy bun of wavy orange hair so flame bright the filaments seem transparent. Here it is, Ming says. 
On the plate is a fried cod filet sandwich, a lettuce leaf, and a slice of pickle. Have you decided, she asked James, or would you like more time? I'll have the breakfast special with scrambled eggs and bacon, please, and hash browns. Look at that, Ming remarks when the server is gone. Real red hair. It's hard to find a genuine redhead now. Too much interracial breeding. He lifts the top bun and peers underneath, then replaces the bun and takes a bite. Crisp and light on the tartar. Perfect. To finish this up, let us turn to a more cheerful topic. So Tom Drury, an American author and visiting professor at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And former fellow at the American uh, Academy. That too, right. Uh, so he introduced you at your lecture, and he said that one of his notes while reading your novel was that it makes him hungry. And I think, especially since we listened to the passage where, where Ming and James are sat in the restaurant and, and as they order food, and so I... I can see why he made that note. But I also thought about the narrative function of food in your novel and what does the comparison and contrast between the two restaurants, the Chinese and all-American food, say about the community? There is a lot of food in the book, and it, it ends up civilizing the community in many ways. It tracks the development of of different communities in the city of Haven. When Winnie and DeLeo first arrive in Haven, they found this Chinese restaurant that gradually succeeds while some of the traditional restaurants go out of style or just go out of business. And in fact, the family that owned these businesses, a bar, a butcher, and a diner, They resent the chows for this reason. I wanted to set scenes at these places. The remaining white-owned business, which is a diner at the other restaurant, and the chows family restaurant, the fine chow. Just to illustrate and to vivify the place, the town, I guess, in which all of this takes place, The other restaurant is a significant locale in the novel because it's the place where the Chinese family goes to escape their dad or to hide out or to make plans to be unseen. No one would expect to see them at this diner and the diner doesn't get very good business so nobody really goes there. It's where several significant moments take place. I wanted to make the food at that restaurant tasty to show that there is something to American food. I believe that um, they have a pie, they have ice cream on it, they have a fish sandwich. And then in the Chow's restaurant, I wanted to make it clear that the food had been changed by its setting in America. So there's a list of items in the kitchen that Americans like, and then a list that they don't like. Keeping in mind that the Chow's came to this area back in the days when hardly there were hardly any Asians there. They had to discover a lot of how to Americanize their offerings, you know, their cuisine on their own. And so, for example, they were able to do various things like make noodles, soup with dump dumplings and noodles in them. But they also felt really uncomfortable about stuff that they didn't know at all, like chop suey. They were like, what is this? They never served chop suey. 
So I feel that in a way, the restaurants and the food work through a lot of issues in the surrounding culture of the town and in the characters in this novel. Yeah, wow. So now I'm quite hungry as well for some soup with noodles and dumplings in it, but also for your book. And I hope our listeners are too. And if you liked what you heard, then you can pre-order Sam's new novel, The Family Chow, which is about to be published in February. Sam, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being our guest on Beyond the Lecture. Thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. for this episode. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series on our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, or watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and on Twitter. Our show today was produced and edited by Juliana Schallau. I'm your host, Denise Gammon, from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening.